Sergio says that we are love, and then he well, says, we oh, we are life. So there we go. We are both love and we are life. That, that particular uh, verse, uh, pay, which is Psalm 119, um, where is that? 130, that was written about me. The word gives understanding to the simple. There you go. That was written about me. Okay, we got uh, this day in history. Today is, I don't know, 20... 8th? 29th? All day. 28th all day. Okay, so we're 28th May. He tried to dispel the rumors about him. Paul's third missionary journey had been very rewarding. The Roman province of Asia along the seacoast of modern Turkey was now evangelized, and the churches of Greece were doing well. His next objective was to go to Jerusalem with a collection for the poor. That's 1 Corinthians 16, 1 through 4. Paul and his traveling companions arrived in Jerusalem, where they stayed at the home of Manasseh, one of the early disciples. As the news of Paul's arrival spread, many Christians came to welcome him to Jerusalem. On May 28, A.D. 57, and they have to be guessing that, they just are filling this in because they don't know that for certain. The day after his arrival, Paul went with his traveling companions to meet with James, the brother of Jesus, and leader of the church in Jerusalem. All the, uh, yes, all the elders of the church in Jerusalem were also present. Paul first gave a detailed account of the things God had accomplished among the Gentiles through his ministry. Then he presented to James the offering he had collected in the Gentile churches for the poor of the church in Jerusalem. Paul's report and the generous gift caused the elders to praise God, but at the same time, there was an issue they felt they needed to get off their chests. Many thousands of Jews in Jerusalem church were trusting Jesus as their Messiah, but they were also very zealous for keeping the laws of the Old Testament. It should say the Old Covenant, but whatever. Among the Hebrew Christians of Jerusalem, it was widely rumored that not only was Paul teaching his Gentile converts that they did not need to keep the Old Testament law, but he was also encouraging Jewish converts to stop following the law of Moses. Eight years earlier, the Jerusalem Council had officially determined that it was not necessary for Gentile Christians to keep the Old Testament law. But that ruling was irrelevant to many of the Hebrew Christians of Jerusalem. This is what we're going to be talking about in the book of Galatians starting in a week or so. Um, let's see here. But uh, that ruling was irrelevant. There was so much opposition to Paul in Jerusalem, the church there, over this issue that the leaders felt that Paul needed to do something to counter the rumors about himself. Then the church leadership had a specific suggestion. Four Hebrew Christians in the Church of Jerusalem had taken a temporary Nazarite vow, a special Old Testament oath of consecration to God. Temporary, uh, temporary Nazarite vows typically lasted 30 days. However, if the person became ceremonially unclean by going near a dead body, for example, he had to undergo purification rites at the temple, shave his head on the seventh day, and start his vow all over again. 
Apparently these four had become unclean and needed purification. James and the elders there suggested to Paul, go with them to the temple and join them in the purification ceremony and pay for them to have their heads shaved. Then everyone will know that the rumors are all false and that you yourself observe the Jewish laws. Then, fearing that Paul might think they were going back on the decision of the Jerusalem council, they added, as for the Gentile Christians, all we ask of them is what we have already told them in a letter. They should not eat food to idols, nor consume blood, nor eat meat from strangled animals, and they should stay away from all sexual immorality. Paul agreed with their request in order to halt the rumors and went through the purification ritual, ritual with the four men. Do you think that Paul did the right thing in agreeing to go to this Jewish ritual? Paul's strategy was to observe the cultural norms of whatever group he was with so as to not alienate them from Christ. I, to a Jew, I became a Jew. To a Gentile, I became a Gentile. To those under the law, etc. So he was, he was doing what was right in order to make converts. I have become a servant of, oh, here it is right here. I become a servant of everyone that I can bring them to Christ. When I'm with the Jews, I become one of them so that I can bring them to Christ. When I am with those who follow the Jewish laws, I do the same, even though I am not subject to the law, very clear there, so that I can bring them to Christ. When I am with the Gentiles who do not have Jewish laws, I fit in with them as much as I can. In this way, I gain their confidence and bring them to Christ. 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 20. So there you go with that. Paul um, never told anybody that they had to observe the law of Moses ever again because the law of Moses is annulled, it is set aside, it is obsolete, it is nailed to the cross. But he did those things in order to get people to not be alienated and then he would properly instruct them on the fact that there is what is called a new covenant. A new covenant means that the old covenant is no longer to be observed for those that come into the new covenant. But for those who did not come into the new covenant, they're still under the old covenant. And uh, so that's what Israel is in today. That's where they're going to be until they finally realize that Christ is the Messiah and they'll come into the new covenant. Jeremiah 31, 31. Is that right? Anyway, um, so uh, we got that there. And then we have um, a present from Burke. This is the most incredible thing I've ever seen. He brought this in today. It's a table that I can put all my stuff on. It's got a place for a pen right there. So I, I've got my own little workstation. You've never seen one of those? Oh, I've never great. seen it. This is unbelievable. This is, is the most incredible thing. So we got to thank Burke for that. And uh, that's yeah, that's I'm telling you, it's got a little pad down here, so it's soft on your leg, and it's oh, it's just unbelievable. Okay, I got just two prayer requests. Um, ben, little baby, we just want to continue to pray for him, even though he is home. We want to make sure that we continue to pray for him, just so that his health remains and he gets strong and uh, hearty as a. Uh, child should and then jill he's doing much oh much better he's home and yeah he's much better yes so uh we're very thankful that was you weren't you didn't show up for church sunday so you wouldn't know that but yes <laughs> but uh uh jill in north carolina also emailed me today and she's just got some real real stresses in her life and uh uh she the main thing with her is she desperately needs a job if you're in the area of charlotte or you know somebody in the area of charlotte that uh can get her a job that would be great. She's really had a very difficult year, and she's just kind of in an email where she emails and she says things are really, really bad. She always finds a reason to praise the Lord at the same time, and she finds something that the Lord has done, which is miraculous in her neighborhood or in her life personally. So she understands her position and she understands her situation, but 
if you know somebody in Charlotte that can help out, please just let me know, and I will have Jill go Charlie, right to the. I I don't know. She will do anything. She just wants to work and to be able to pay her bills. So if you think of somebody or you know somebody in the Charlotte area, let me know. Um, can I can I add a prayer request? Yes, please. It's pretty bad. I just got a call about two hours ago from a friend of mine. His son-in-law shot and killed himself. Oh boy. Okay, we just—you probably can't hear what he said, but uh, one of his friends' son-in-law shot himself today in, in front of his wife, and so uh, that's obviously very difficult. Now I know somebody that lost his son in this way uh, uh, about a year ago, and if they need somebody to reach out to, he will do that. I, I can give you their information if you want to email me, and I will. I that. I, they, that will be a big help because he he's gone through this and he he can empathize with them so uh let me know about that we'll go ahead and go to the lord in prayer heavenly father uh, you heard about that tragedy and uh the other uh, two prayer requests that we have here and uh, we would ask that your hand would be with them and uh it's hard to imagine uh what that uh, young lady is going through having seen what she saw and she's obviously going to be uh disturbed in her mind for a very long time we would ask that you would uh just be with the family, be with those that knew him, and uh, give them uh, w wisdom in this time of crisis in their life to reach out to somebody that is able to help them through this and to not uh, go further down into a, a place of despair. And Lord, uh, we certainly also pray for this class. We pray that uh, what is said here today will be glorifying of you and will be properly directed and properly stated so that nothing is amiss and that uh, you would be glorified through it. And uh, if there is something that's not right, that you would uh, somehow just let people know that in some way without uh, there being a lot of accusation or backfighting, but just simply to get the word out that something was not right. And uh, so bad doctrine is not instilled in somebody's mind. And we would pray this, that you would be glorified through their correct doctrine. We certainly pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> All right, we are in the last, starting the last chapter of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 13, and then we're going to start in verse 1. Go. This will be my third visit to you. Every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Okay. Well, gee whiz, I didn't even get my paper out by the time that finished. Okay, so he's obviously citing the law of Moses in that, but it's not only in the law of Moses. You will find that elsewhere. I mean, uh, uh, two or three witnesses are uh, seen in other parts of Scripture, but uh, he's citing that directly from the law. Um, Thirteen one comments. Let's see here. Despite the seeming obvious nature of the words of this verse, it is highly debated over, both in the initial clause and in the first and in the quote itself. Paul says, first, this will be the third time that I am coming to you. What does that mean? The obvious answer is that he had been there twice, and this would now be his third visit. If one were to simply read the epistle without studying Acts and 1 Corinthians, this would be the obvious conclusion. However, there's no noted second visit to Corinth. Instead, there is the note that Paul intended to come, but decided not to because of the sorrow such a visit would bring. That was 2 Corinthians 2 verse 1. Okay, next he mentions, oops, I'm sorry, therefore some commentators take the word echumai as I am coming. It is a verse of intent. Thus it would read, this is the third time I have intended to come to you. 
Either way, whether through an actual series of visits or through his intended visits, Paul had indirectly come to them through his letters. He now, intend, he now intends to come again in person. This will occur after his letter is received and digested by the Corinthians, which is always a good idea. If you've got a lot of things to say to somebody, say it in a letter, let them think over it, and then show up at the door and you can talk it through. After his initial words comes another curious item. It is a quote found several times in the Old Testament. He says, By the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. One such reference is found in Deuteronomy 17, verse 6. Let me take you there just so you can find out exactly what it says. Deuteronomy 17 and verse 6 says, 17, which we're going to be here. We're going to be in that chapter pretty soon here. Um, Whoever is deserving of death shall be put to death on the testimony of two or three witnesses. He shall not be put to death on the testimony of one witness. Jesus cites this precept as well in Matthew 18, 16, where it says, Matthew 18, verse 16. Okay, but if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. Though those are Old Testament references, or I should say Old Covenant references, Jesus spoke those words to under the law to Israel. Paul uses them as well. This shows that it is as much a part of natural revelation as it is a precept found under the law. If you go to the book of uh, uh, Job, for example, what book Job is where in the Bible? Does anybody know what number of, of uh the Bible, it's the first book, 10th book, 18th book, 20th book, anybody? I believe it's the 18th book. So it forms a pattern there because you have the two or three witnesses against Job trying to argue a point, and then Jesus cites that in Matthew 18. So once again, you have one of those patterns that shows up in the Bible. Anyway, um, so, but because it's in the book of Job that you've got people witnessing and uh, trying to testify against somebody, then it shows that it's natural revelation as much as anything else. And I would guess that many societies throughout history have had a law similar to that. I don't know that, but I would guess that, uh, it, like, you know, natural revelation, almost every society, I can't think of a society that doesn't follow the seven-day work week, or, yeah, seven-day week with six days or five days work, and then the uh, seventh day off or whatever. Almost every society in the world does it. It's almost considered natural revelation, and that's because it comes right out of what God is doing. So there you go. It's probably something like that with with, uh, this particular precept. Having said that, the intent of Paul's words is taken by various scholars in several ways. First, he is tying his third visit to three witnesses. Are these attestations to the truth which he preaches? That's the pulpit commentary's question. If this is the case, then this turns the judge into a prosecutor and makes him appeal to his own reiteration of his charges as evidence of their truth. That's Charles Ellicott's commentary on that, you see? So these people are saying that two or three witnesses isn't just speaking about, you know, uh, uh, two people showing up. It's his witnesses of coming and testifying to them through letters or through visits. Others say that this is referring to his visit, but that it is a petition for the Corinthians to not take action prior to his arrival. Bengals Noman says, therefore, in this matter, the apostles thought of depending not on immediate revelation, but on the testimony of men. And he does not command the culprits to be cast out of the church before his arrival. 
So that's Bengal says that. Um, sometimes Bengal's a little hard to read, and the reason why is because it was in German and then it was translated. You'll see that with Kyle and Lang and some of these other great scholars. They were German scholars, and so somebody had to translate their stuff, and sometimes the translation may be kind of odd. What is, what is the guy trying to say in it? But there you go. Another scholar, Lightfoot, makes the supposition that he refers to Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus. They went on behalf of Paul and were witnesses to them of his purpose. So people are debating, what is he talking about? And it's hard to know for sure. They had the information concerning the events at Corinth, and it transmitted them to Paul. This seems less likely because this would make Paul a fourth witness when he arrived at Corinth to determine what was going on. As he cites the precept two or three, then why would he actually mean four without stating it as such? Further, it ignores Titus's visit and report as well. So then you'd have five. So, But these are scholars that are just trying to give you what they think maybe is going on because the words are not as simple as you just read them and you go over them and they don't think it through. Finally, Albert Barnes notes that, this is his words, he anticipated that there would be necessity for the administration of discipline there, but that he would feel himself under obligation in administering it to adhere to the reasonable maxim of the Jewish law. No one should be condemned or punished where there was not at least two or three witnesses to prove the offense, but where there were, discipline would be administered according to the nature of the crime. That's Albert Barnes. He's always very insightful and sometimes a little bit wordy, but his words are always valid. They're not, there's nothing superfluous in what he says even if it takes him a while to say it. Um, we just had our first lady show up today, so now we have six guys and one lady in the class. This is very wonderful. Anyway, um, let's see here. This seems reasonable as well, Albert Barnes' commentary. But why would Paul reinsert Jewish law, which was annulled in the New Covenant, especially when he's writing to a Gentile church, which we just saw in here, even the super apostles down in Jerusalem agreed that the Gentiles were not in any way, shape, or form under the Jewish law. And I hate using the term Jewish law because it's not really. It's the law of Moses. It's the law of God. It is a step in the revelation of God. So saying Jewish law is probably more appropriate when you're talking about today's law. The Talmud, the Mishnah, and the Gemara, which is what the Jews, they codified their, uh, their culture through these particular writings. And that's what they adhere to. They don't adhere to the law of Moses. I can't think of a Jew that I know that says, oh, that's in the law of Moses and we need to observe it. It may be in the Talmud and they're referring to it and therefore they second-handedly observe it, but they do not observe the law of Moses really in any way, shape, or form, okay? And if they do, then they should be coming to Christ anyway. And so the entire thing is superfluous, all right? But whatever, um, yeah, why would uh, Paul reinsert Jewish law, which was annulled in the New Covenant? He is especially adamant that the law is fulfilled in Christ and thus set aside. It is, as he says in Colossians 2, verse 14, nailed to the cross. What seems the most likely option is that Paul is, in fact, tying the statement that this is his third visit in with two or three witnesses as a point of natural revelation, which the law only confirms. He had visited and written to the Corinthians, and he will visit again. If there is still sin, which has not been repented of in the church, he will deal with it based on his past warnings and admonishments. That's probably it. That's my guess. But as I said, you got a lot of good scholars from ages past, and they disagree on this particular verse. And when I say that 
back here I said uh, uh, it's a point of natural revelation which the law only confirms. Well, we see that all the way through the law, okay? Natural revelation, which I just kind of mentioned with the Sabbath, it's pretty much universal, even though it is a part of the law of Moses that you're to observe a Sabbath day, it was actually observed before the law was given. The Sabbath day was given when in the Bible? Don't say Genesis 1 and 2, 3, okay? That's not it. All it says is that God rested on the third day, okay? Uh, seventh day, thank you. I, I don't know why I said third other than I was looking at you and there are two guys sitting behind you, so I saw three <laughs> handsome guys. Anyway, no, um, uh, the, the uh, seventh day, it, it was actually the first time the Sabbath was mentioned was in Exodus 16. The Ten Commandments, the giving of the law was Exodus 20. Okay, for remember, Exodus 16 had a lot of really good information. It had the, the manna and then the Sabbath. And you can tell by the articles that are, where they're placed when it says Sabbath, the Sabbath, etc. You can tell absolutely that the law was not observed before that time. People want to argue it was always the commandment of God. It was known from the beginning. That has to be read into their theology because it is obvious. Go back and watch those sermons. The Sabbath was not always observed. There may have been seven day weeks and people may have taken a day off or they may have done whatever. We don't know that. Nothing is recorded on that precept. But the first time the Sabbath was mandated for Israel is Exodus 16. And as I said, following the articles, the Sabbath, etc., we know there's no doubt about it that the Sabbath was never observed until that time. Okay, it's a wonderful passage. Exodus 16 has got so many wonderful things in there. It's got the Omer, the hidden Omer. What a picture of Christ. I mean, just go back and watch those sermons. You will love them. That's natural revelation being brought forward into the law. Can anybody think of anything else that was natural revelation, something that cultures did, and then it was brought in, in as a part of the law of Moses? Punishment for murder. Okay, the word ratzach or murder, that's very good, was not mentioned until Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments. But we know that uh, what's the mother, Rebecca, the mother of uh, Jacob and Esau, she said, well, you know, I might lose both my sons in the same time. Well, that was because they had the law of the avenger even before the giving of the Ten Commandments and the law of Moses. And so, very good. I'm surprised you got that. You've been brushing up. I'm, I'm just, Shocking. yeah, you know, and you've got other things, marriage laws that were obviously, we see this in Genesis, and then they're incorporated into, you know, the, the giving of a double portion of inheritance and things like that. They're all mentioned before the law, and yet they're incorporated into the law. We do not want to make the mistake, and commentators do it all the time before the law, they will say, well, this is a precept that is in the law of Moses. And so they're putting the cart before the horse. You can't do that. The law of Moses incorporated it from the culture or from the natural revelation, not the other way around. And when you read those early uh, uh, verses in Genesis and even early Exodus before the giving of the law, and you read a commentary that says that, make sure you put a line through it and say R-O-N-G. It's wrong, okay? Because that is not the way it works. The law came after, and it incorporated things from cultures, etc. But it was not something that all nations did. Some did, some didn't, etc. Okay, got to be careful with those type of things, but that is what we just discussed is probably what is on Paul's mind. Natural revelation being incorporated into what he is saying. Okay, plus at the same time, it's supported by the law of Moses, so there's no, no loss at all anyway. Um, life application. Let us carefully evaluate each verse of the Bible. It is acceptable in verses like the one we're looking at right now to say, I think the most likely option is, however, we should never 
get so bullheaded about it that we refuse to consider other options as well. There is one ultimate meaning, that is true, but maybe we have misevaluated the verse from the start. Let us take care to always consider that we don't know it all. And so let us be willing to be open to correction as we grow in knowledge and doctrine. I had, um, I was telling Jim before we started today, I just had a miserable week. Sundays are very difficult. I'm very tired when I get up on Monday morning. And I made the galactic mistake of reading emails before I started sermon typing. And uh, somebody was just exactly this, doesn't know what they're talking about, sent me something very rudely, very arrogantly, and it ruined my entire day. It ruined my night. I couldn't sleep that night. And then I was out working on Wednesday, Wednesday, and I pulled a muscle so badly in my back that I couldn't sleep. I couldn't walk anything. But lesson learned for Charlie, never read emails before sermon typing because there's somebody that is going to be bullheaded about a verse, and they're completely wrong. And they don't want to hear, even when you send them the correct analysis. So I would implore each person here, if you think you know, and Paul says this in his own writings, if you think you know, maybe you don't know at all. So don't be a know-it-all. Assimilate things. Give Like I did with that one, I think I gave seven different options on this verse. And I don't want to be dogmatic about it because these are really fine scholars. Uh, Lightfoot and Albert Barnes, Charles Ellicott, uh, Bengel, and I think I cited one more in there. Um, uh, I said him already. Um yeah, but there's one other, I think, I said, pulpit commentary. Yeah, so I got, you know, these commentaries, and I want you to be apprised of what people are thinking, because each one of them is valid in some way or another, but what was Paul thinking? In this case, we really can't tell. So I've given my opinion at the end, but uh, there you go. Don't be... Is Lightfoot an Indian? Uh, yeah, Lightfoot is an Indian. No, he's not. I don't know. Yeah, I, all, it, all it has is his last name, and uh, I, I don't know. So I don't know him personally. When I read Lightfoot's commentary there, that was actually cited by somebody else, okay? Probably Adam Clark cited him. That would be my guess because uh, he's, uh, you know, maybe a contemporary of him or a little bit before. I've read people that cite him also. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I don't know, but yeah, he, uh, uh, I don't know him personally. I don't read his writings. I don't have his commentary. But when somebody cites him and I, it's, in, in, you know, insightful, I like to include that because, you know, he said something that nobody else has said. And somebody has said, well, this is pretty good. That's why I included that. I'll Google it. Yeah, we, and, well, we can Google him and then we'll find out. And you can send me an email to remind me because I don't. I don't know. Okay, 13 I already gave you a warning when I was with you the second time. Now I repeat it while absent. On my return, I will not spare those who sinned early, earlier or any of the others. You did. This is It's so backwards in this one, I've got to read it. I have told you before, and foretell as if I were present the second time, and now being absent, I write to those who have sinned before and to all the rest, that if I come again, I will not spare. So you can see it's just completely, yeah, yeah. completely. How, how does he mention the second, uh, the second time? If I were present the second if time. If I were. Yeah. Where this is definite. It's definite third. Yeah, that's right. I don't, I don't know. I who knows? Says when present. When present. Says okay. Yes. Yeah, so, see, you know, and sometimes these things are really, you're seeing that in the book of John, some of the commentaries, and I may not put it in my commentary, but I got to tell you, some of the words are, uh, John will say something, and this is that, and you don't know if he's talking about what happened before or after. And you really have to sit and think about what is John saying, and people come to completely different conclusions about it. And this, he does this at least eight times in chapter three, four, and five, I believe. I, I'm in five right now, given the commentary. 
it is very difficult to know, is he referring to what he has said, or is he now referring to what he will say? In the New King James Version will put a colon, which means he's referring to what's afterward. But that's not evident. It becomes evident in your mind because you're reading it. It's got a colon. Okay, he must be talking about what's coming next. I'm telling you, sometimes it is definitely not what's coming next, and sometimes you can't tell at all. So, um, it, John, is his words are very precise. Don't get me wrong. When he says that Christ has come in the flesh, he is talking about the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And when today the verse I uh, typed up was, I think, uh, 1 John 5, 12, I think, and he's talking about the Son of God. And he says, if you don't have the Son of God, you don't have God, or, or, or you know, something basically like that. And he's very clear about it. He's talking about Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. And when you evaluate that passage and when you read it, you can put right in your head, he is definitely referring to the Gnostic heretics, the Jehovah's Witnesses, people like this, that the Mormons, they claim Jesus is this, but he's not this. And he's saying, if you don't have both, you ain't saved. You are not. You have no part in the Father at all. So let me read that while we're, just so that you can see what I'm talking about. Oh, no, but they, they, they were following the Arian heresy, which was back at 200 AD. So, so it was already going around that they were not denying either the deity of Christ or the, uh, and that's why they wrote these epistles. We think that they're just writing and saying, oh, I'm giving you some doctrine. He is refuting, Paul is refuting people's doctrine. That's why he gives a lot of these things. He's saying, no, Galatians, perfect thing. These people come in and say the opposite of what he had already told them. Now, that's great because we are the benefactors of that. There is now an epistle that is written for all time in the church. But when Paul wrote that to the Galatians, he wasn't writing it as, well, I'm giving you doctrine. He did that face to face. And they turned away from what he had given them, and so he's giving them a letter. So that's how that works. 1 John 5, uh, 12. We'll go back to 11. And this is the testimony, colon. So is he talking about what was before or after? The New King James Version assumes it's after. That God has given us eternal life and that this life is in his Son. Verse 12. He who has the Son has life. It doesn't really say that. It says the life. He who has the Son has the life, which is speaking about the eternal life. Okay, if it just said life, the way it does, leaving off those articles is actually detrimental because sometimes people will say, well, I'm alive. What's he talking about? They have no idea. He's talking about eternal life. Um, you'd have to go back a couple verses to see that. But he says, um, uh, 12, he who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He is being very clear about that. If you don't have the Son of God, meaning he is God incarnate, you are not saved. You are not a part of what God is doing in this world. And it's it's a life-determining or eternity-determining decision. We have to make sure that we follow what the Word says. And if somebody comes and says, well, you believe what you believe and I believe what I believe, I, that doesn't get it with God. This is His Word, and He is very clear. You have something to say. You read 13.2. Uh, okay, I'll read it. I'm going to be evaluating 13 tomorrow. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. So he says it again. That's right. And that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. They inserted the word continue. It's probably a uh, present participle, continue believing. Anyway, so uh, it, it's you got to be really careful with these translations read several translations because some of them leave off really important articles that help you understand what is going on. Anyway, um, we'll get back to where we are, 13.2. Oh, oh, you've already read it and I've read it, so now we can evaluate it. Okay, 13.2. 
Paul had already warned the Corinthians concerning their lack of repentance. Specifically, he says this in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 21. But it is implied throughout 1 Corinthians 5 as well. He had warned them, and he now gives them another advance warning. His words, and foretell as if I were present the second time, are translated differently based on what one believes Paul had made two visits or just one so far. So your translation and his translation say something different yeah. because these people are saying, we got to translate something. And they, you know, they don't know. So they're either saying it present or past tense or whatever. Okay, the way the New King James Version, which I use just for studies and sermons, and if I deviate from it, I always let you know. When I deviated it from this morning in the John, 1, 1 John 5 commentary, I always put what version I'm citing. I cited Young's literal translation because he's the only one that put the article in front of the word life. Out of all 20-some... The life? Yeah. Okay, well, I'm glad they do. I'm glad they do because... All the others that I looked at this morning, none of them did. So I'm glad that they did. Okay, the way the New King James Version, cited here, translates it, only one prior visit is presupposed. However, some other translations, as he just read, state it this way. I already gave you a warning when I was with you the second time. There you go. That's the NIV. Either way, concerning this issue, though, he now says, and now being absent, I write to those who have sinned before. And to the rest that if I come again, I will not spare. That's Paul's words. Paul doesn't question their salvation. He never does. There is never a time in Paul's writings where he questions somebody's salvation. Everybody got that? Because I've had several calls over the past week or people emailing me and wanting to know how do I discuss this issue about eternal salvation or loss of salvation. It's an important issue. People get confused. Verses are taken out of their context. Paul never never question somebody's salvation. Even the worst of offenders living under habitual sin, sleeping with his father's wife, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he never questions his salvation. Instead, he argues for it. He says, uh, hand him over to Satan so that for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved on the day of Christ Jesus. He argues for the salvation, not against it. I so, remember who the guy was. It was somebody who turned against him, caused him a lot of grief, and Alexander the uh, metalsmith. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, he he was a Christian. Uh, no, Alexander might not have been. Uh, that one there. Uh, it, yeah, it, it, yeah. It, he may be the guy that was actually recorded in Acts chapter six. Uh, this, remember the uh, yeah, greatest, uh, yeah, yeah, greatest Artemis of the Ephesians. And so um, we'll be in. Uh, I think that's one Timothy, not two Timothy, but it may be two Timothy. Anyway, we will be there very soon. So when we get there, we'll recheck uh, that. But I think he's referring to a Jewish guy that was making idols, and he caused Paul a lot of trouble. He does mention two people that had walked away from the faith. They have shipwrecked their faith. And uh, uh, Hymenius and, uh, anyway, and he doesn't question their salvation. He says exactly the same thing that he says about the uh, guy in 1 Corinthians 5. I've handed them over to Satan, implying that they are saved, but they are going to have difficulty in this life unless they turn back to the Lord. Paul never never question somebody's salvation. You cannot find that in Paul's writings. You have to read it into there. He never says this person can lose their salvation in a general way or in a specific way, nor does anywhere else in the 
New Testament. That has to be read into it, or it is a verse which is misapplied, like uh, Hebrews 6, 4 through 6 especially. When it's speaking of the nation of Israel, it's not speaking right. of individual Revelation. salvation. Revelation. Yeah. Take your, uh, your lampstand away. It has nothing to do with an individual. It has to do with the church. You will not find loss of salvation in the New Testament, because it's not true. Okay, he doesn't question their salvation, but he does question their right to continue in sin without correction. He will not tolerate it within the body, and so he will take decisive action to correct any such failings to bring one's actions in line with the salvation that they profess. If you profess salvation, he is going to work to get you in line with that, okay? And if it means kicking you out of the church in order to do so, he's going to do that, all right? And he's giving us this instruction and these examples so that we can do the exact same thing in the church today. Somebody is not living for the Lord, let them know. But you don't go questioning their salvation other than, you know, you, you should probably check and see if you really are saved. You might go that far, but you're not going to personally question their salvation. You tell them to question their salvation. Okay. Examine yourself. Examine yourself and see if you're in the faith. That's right. Because uh, it, I have no idea if you or you or any of you guys over or that pretty lady there are saved. That's not my call. I can say they're not living for the Lord. They may not be saved and they should question their stand before the Lord. But yeah, anyway, okay, um, uh, life application, when one comes to Christ, that person should go through a process of giving up on the sin which exists in his life. This naturally comes after salvation. One does not get himself well in order to go to the doctor. I say that from time to time. That is a category mistake. We uh, uh, have um, uh, a sickness and we want to get well, we don't say, oh, you know what? I don't want to bother the doctor, so I'm going to get myself healthy, and then I'm going to go visit him and show him what I did. We don't do that in the medical world. We don't do it with our car. We don't do it with any other thing. But we try to do it with Jesus. I'm going to fix myself, and then I'm going to go to Jesus. It does not work that way. All it does is it elevates you in your own eyes, it's the sin of pride, and then you further alienate yourself from Christ. So I'll read that again. When one comes to Christ, he should go through a process of giving up on the sin which exists in his life. It doesn't happen all at once, and some people never get rid of the sin in their life. Okay? They're the ones that will stand before the Lord. Okay? This naturally comes after salvation. One does not get himself well in order to go to the doctor. Rather, the doctor cures them. We call on Christ and then have to follow his instructions, which are found right here. Here's your medical instructions for getting yourself well, if you are willing to apply them. If the doctor gives you antibiotics and instead you take um, uh, durian candy, you may or may not get healed, okay? So you have to, uh, you have to follow the instruction to, and take the medication, all right? So the doctor is given his cure. Repentance necessarily follows salvation. If it does not, then the individual is to be corrected through the means available to the church. Repentance cannot logically come before salvation. If you don't understand that, go back and watch the doctrine sermon I did on that particular issue. Is salvation eternal? Or, no, the title is once saved, always saved, or not so. Okay, go back and watch that sermon and you will logically see why salvation comes first by believing the gospel, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4 applying that gospel, Romans 10, 9 and 10, and then from there you repent of the things that you are doing as you learn that you're doing them wrong. You can't even know everything you're doing wrong until you start reading the manual. 
Some people never get the manual. They live out in the jungle and they told, they're told you need Jesus and they say, okay, and that's the last they ever hear of it. They are as saved as anybody else on the planet that has completely fixed their life after coming to Christ. Okay, that's it. Okay, 13.3. Since you were demanding proof that Christ is speaking through me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. Okay, see, now this is a little different. Listen to the difference. It's subtle, but it's a big difference. Uh, first, I like the word demanding that they use. This one is not nearly as strong. Since you seek proof of Christ speaking in me, who is not weak toward you, but mighty in you. Okay, what does in you mean? Is it individual? Is it in the church? Okay, that one says among you. Okay, so there you go. It, it, a little word may make a big difference. Okay, uh, Paul said that he would not spare those who had sinned before. That's what he just said. Okay, in other words, those who had sinned and were continuing in sin would be shown that Paul was capable of rooting them out and disciplining them. Understanding this, he now says, since you seek a proof of Christ speaking in me. The Greek is literally of the Christ that speaks in me. Once again, there's an article there. Vincent's Word Studies notes that it is an experimental proof of what kind of a being the Christ who speaks in me is, okay? They had challenged him by holding to the words of the false apostles. We went through that just through verse after verse after verse, and he's relying on that instruction that he has given them to make his points here. They had challenged him in their words concerning his ability to present himself as a leader. And they had implied that there was weakness in him. That's what they said about Paul. Remember, it says his letters are weighty, but his appearance is weak and unimpressive, whatever. But he was ready to come and give a proof of Christ speaking in him. As an apostle, the power of Christ was there to give him words. It was a guarantee from Christ to his apostles, and Paul was relying on that, knowing that it was so. Okay, when Christ said that to the apostles, you know, uh, when you stand before kings and whatever, I will be there. It's not you speaking, but it is me. He wasn't speaking to all believers in general. Okay, he was speaking to the apostles. He was speaking to those that would be representing him. An apostle is one sent by Christ. Okay, so that's where that goes. I need to remember that this has got a pen thing here, so I don't have to keep reaching over here. Great thing. Hidako, you see what Burke got me? Isn't that wonderful? Yeah. Unbelievable. That's what happens when you show up late for class. You miss the presentation. See? <laughs> Poor wife. Oh, my gosh. Okay, so we'll go on now. Um, You're going to be locked out. I'm going to be locked out of the house when I get home. That's correct. Okay, so in this power of Christ speaking in me, Paul's words... He notes that it is not weak toward you, but mighty in you. A better translation of this is, as it said, among you rather than in you. Again, Vincent notes he is speaking not of Christ as he dwells in them, but as he works with reference to them. The word is eis, E-I-S, and among their number, inflicting punishment for their sin. I've said this before. You have the word E-I-S. Some people pronounce it ace or eis or whatever. Okay. It is a word that can be translated a multitude of ways, and it takes real skill to know what is being said there, and Greek scholars will argue constantly over that word. So if you have a difference in a translation, sometimes it's better to, you know, just look at the surrounding verses and try to glean what is being said in a general sense. Um, now this one, the word en in Greek is en, which means in. And it doesn't have that there. And so it's probably not in. And as Vincent says, this is much more 
uh, likely being among you. It's speaking about what is going on among you as a people rather than in you individually. Okay, that's why reading different translations is really important, is because you will get a different sense, and sometimes, as the King James preface says, sometimes it's one and not another. They acknowledge that there is no translation, including theirs, which is even close to being able to grasp the Word of God completely. You got translation committees, they each translate things differently, and then it actually forms contradictions in the Bible, because they translate. There's a good example of this. In the book of Exodus, Moses is told to take the um, tabernacle and make it according to the pattern, right? Everybody remember that? Mm -hmm. Okay, I got some head shaking. So there's a pattern which is in heaven, and he is to make it according to the pattern. Well, if you go to the book of Hebrews, the King James Version says exactly the opposite. It, it contradicts itself. It is incorrect, okay? It is not just an error. It is a contradiction because the Hebrew says exactly the opposite. And so when you look at these things, you get confused because you've got one translation committee sitting here where we're going to do the book of Hebrews, and you've got another one over here, and nobody's worried about the stylistic changes all the way across the Bible. They're worried about that book at that time. So it's, it's uh, very important when you read the Bible to assimilate it, to think on it, chew on it, and then go read other versions and make a determination or read some commentaries if you're not sure. That is really important to do. And I'm talking about for study. I'm not talking about for general reading. Um, who was it that emailed me and said, um, uh, the Psalms is such a wonderful book? Who was it just this morning? Oh, don't want to give the name, but uh, somebody sent me an email and I'm in the Psalms right now. And what a wonderful book. And I have to agree. You know, I read the Psalm first thing I do every single day. Just read Psalm 119, not the whole thing, and then uh, I get into whatever I'm in. But I got to tell you what, if you want to just have God feeding you, read the Psalms. And it can be in any translation. It, it may not be doctrinally correct. You know, they may have in instead of among or whatever, but the Psalms is where you're going to find some real comfort when you're down. Anyway, um, the power of Christ uh, in Paul was capable of being displayed among them for the correction of their failings. He would use that power in order to execute exactly that. Good job, Paul. Life application. We now have the word of God written down so that we have the record, on record, the power of Christ which Paul possessed. It is our standard and it is our authority to execute discipline within the church. The power that Paul speaks of concerning himself is an apostolic authority which is no longer needed in individuals. The reason is that this power has been defined in the pages of Scripture. Let us be careful to hold to the Bible as the rule and guide for our doctrine and practice within the faith. Everybody see that? It's very logical if you think it through. We don't need to have that particular power in us because it is displayed. The Holy Spirit has spoken. It is done. The word amen is on Revelation 22, verse 21. The word is written. So that particular power is no longer needed. Now we rely on the Holy Spirit to give us illumination into the word, to maybe help us find insights into the word, to, you know, when you're doing a sermon, as I, you know, do each Monday, that's what I do. I type my Bible commentary in the morning. I usually start on the uh, sermon and I do a little bit of typing. I get started and then I go down to the mall because it's the sunrise has come up. I've taken my photo. I go down the mall. I rush down there and I take out the garbage and clean everything really quickly. And while I'm there, I always say, Lord, give me wisdom in your word when I get back home. Because I'm. if I don't do that, I would be sitting there all day having no idea what's going on. I'm certain of that. I am certain that the Lord 
responds to your prayers like that. And I do it every single week. And that's what you should do. That's when you are reading the word, Lord, open your word to me. And it may not be that you're going to get it right then. It may be that a week from now, you're listening to a sermon from Alistair Begg, and he talks about the question that you asked about that particular verse. But he wants his word revealed to you. He does. And so he will reveal it to you if you're sincere in asking him about it. Okay? So um, uh, the, I'm going to read that again. The power that Paul speaks of concerning himself is an apostolic authority, which is no longer needed in individuals. We have churches. We have pastors. Who set up the pastors and the deacons in the church? Who did that? Originally, Paul. That's right. Timothy and Titus. So we have the structure we need. And it doesn't get into all kinds of great detail. It just simply says, if you have an elder, this is his qualifications. If you have a deacon, this is his qualifications. He must meet these. Other than that, he doesn't get into any detail. Whereas the Old Testament talks about the temple and the uh, the tabernacle in such minute detail that every board had to be an exact length and every curtain had to be an exact color. Everything pictured Christ. Well, now Christ has been revealed. We don't need those things anymore. Now we have a church and we have a few leaders that are told how to do it and the structure of the church is left up to the people in the church. There is no such thing as we are turning back to the original church. I hear that every time somebody starts a new church. People will send me an email and our pastor wants to start a new church and uh, you know we're going to be following him and and we're going back to the original model. And every time I hear that, I say, I want you to know there's no original model. There's none. And you go through the Bible, and this church did this thing. You, you go to another part, and this church is doing that thing. Romans wasn't led the same as the Corinthians, and Corinthians wasn't led the same as the Galatians. And in Acts, there's no two churches that do the same thing. They are just people that met, and they did certain things on their own without any structure at all. So when somebody tells you we're going back to the original church, and that sounds very fancy, it is very incorrect. Okay? All right, so 13.4. For to be sure, he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by God's power. Likewise, we are weak in him, yet by God's power we will we live with him to serve you. Okay, well, this is, it says the same thing, but I'll read it anyway, because it is a little differently worded. For though he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by the power of God. For we are also weak in him but we shall live with him by the power of God toward you. See, it says the same thing. It's just a little differently uh, done. Okay, Paul now draws a comparison to his. We, meaning he and the apostles, life in Christ and Christ's life in the flesh. In verse 12, 9, he said concerning the words of Jesus to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. This explains what is on Paul's mind here and the analogy that he is making. He begins with, for though he was crucified in weakness. This is speaking of the weak, even fragile human nature which Christ possessed. Paul refers to it elsewhere, such as in Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Wonderful words. We've got to read it. you got to read. When you get to citing Philippians 2, you just have to go there and read what Paul is saying because it's so wonderful. It's uh, verses 5 through 8, but I'm going to back it up a little bit. We're going to start with uh, verse 3, so we have a little bit of context. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. He's speaking about others in relation to you. Why would he do that? He says, let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Once again, thinking of others, writing about others, not just yourself all the time. Why would he do that? Verse 5, let this mind that he just explained be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. 
who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. This is the Lord God Almighty, the creator of all things that we see, all things that we experience, taste, hear, smell, the wonders and delights of this universe and the awe and majesty that's out there. It says, he did not consider robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bond servant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Once again, Paul does exactly what John is doing in 1 John. He is highlighting the man God, the God man, the human nature, the divine nature, the divine nature, the human nature. They go back and forth and back and forth so many times that it is impossible that unless you just don't want to believe that it's true, you can't miss it. You cannot miss the fact that God incarnated in Jesus Christ, the God man. Okay, so verse 9, therefore, God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Christ humbled himself. He came and went on a mission. He's saying, therefore, why don't you have the same attitude? And I would go so far as to say that Paul is making an analogy between people humbling themselves in front of other people, and Christ did that. And what did God do with Christ? He exalted him to the name above every name. The idea is that if you will humble yourself, just as Jesus says, you will be exalted. God loves when people show humility and not pride, when they're not arrogant towards other people. And I understand, I completely understand that we get upset at other people. We have arguments with other people. We put ourselves above other people in those circumstances. It happens all the time. Charlie Garrett is classic 101 in that. But at the same, what? Yeah, binocular vision too. But in the end, you want to humble yourself. If you get in an argument with somebody, eventually you need to go up and you say, I'm sorry, you know, we had an argument and I apologize. And it's hard to do, I, but that is what God would expect of us, okay? Unless somebody just is not going to repent of doing you wrong. There's nothing you can do to break through that wall until they're willing to yield to that. But there you go with that. Philippians 2, wonderful words there. It was in this weak human condition that Christ was crucified. Despite being able to call on all of the powers of heaven and earth to rescue him, he condescended to allow the creatures that he created to crucify him. Paul is drawing the same comparison. Though apostles and possessing the apostolic gifts of signs, miracles, and wonders, they still came humbly to those they ministered to. In Paul's case, he refrained from even accepting any assistance from them, something he could have otherwise expected. He could have said, well, you know what? I've already written to the Galatians and told them that everybody that teaches, you got to take care of them because Galatians was written before that, right? He doesn't do that. He takes his own precepts that he expects handled out, handed out in the church age, and he denies himself those rights so that he is not a burden to these people in Corinth. Okay, something he could have otherwise expected. This is evidenced by the words, for we are also weak in him. Okay, the apostles 
were living out the life that they saw or understood from Christ. Paul didn't actually see it until afterward. He was persecuting the church, but he understood that that is the life that Christ lived. He was living that life out. And it's something that anybody that reads the Bible and comes to the verses about Christ, about his ministry, about what he did in his life, should say, you know what? If God was willing to do this for me, maybe I can do this for somebody else. That's one thing. God is not going to break through a wall of pride. He's not going to do it. He's going to allow you to stew in it yourself, and then you're the one that's going to lose your rewards, or you might not even be saved, and that's just how sad that is. But he would ask us to attempt to live life like that. Okay, uh, Paul's words, yet he lives by the power of God, is speaking of Christ. Now, raised to his position within the Godhead and alive forevermore. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. Where is that recorded? Matthew 28, 18. That's correct. All right. At his disposal. All of the power in heaven and on earth, all of it is at Christ's disposal. It is in this state that he now and forevermore will exist. Paul's analogy to this is found in the words, but we shall live with him by the power of God working toward you. That's Paul's words. Again, this is speaking of his and the others with him, thus we, meaning their apostolic powers. Okay. His words are addressed to all of those in Corinth, but they are specifically referring to those who have sinned before. Verse 13, 2. This is why he then said that if I come again, I will not spare. Since you seek a proof of Christ speaking in me, who is not weak toward you, but mighty in you. That's verses 13, 2, and 3. Okay. Paul was ready to use his power as an apostle to ensure that the church for which Christ died in weakness would live by the power of his resurrection. Okay, we see that. Christ died in weakness. We need to live by the power of his resurrection. Life application. Again, as has been explained many times, there is no longer a need for an apostolic ministry which displays power among the churches. The Bible testifies to the ministry of the apostles, and thus it is our sign that God was able to establish his church and how he did it. Because of this, we have no need for such signs today. So don't be led astray by false apostles who are really just cheap magicians. Instead, look to God's word to understand the power of God in Christ. Okay, when I say that, that is exactly what Paul was writing about already in the book of 2 Corinthians. He's going to write about it all the way through the book of Galatians. It's a very short book. Galatians is six chapters. It will take us a few minutes to get through it, but you will have a lifetime of wealth out of it, I assure you, okay? It is a marvelous, marvelous book. He is very clear about these type of things. There are false apostles and there are true apostles. Are any of the true apostles alive today? No, they're all gone, okay? If there are no true apostles left today, then that means anybody that claims to be an apostle of Christ, and I'm talking about somebody speaking on behalf of Christ, he is false. One plus one will always equal two in theology. The reason why is because those people brought us this. They went out and they did their ministry. Several of them were selected to get this word to us, but there is no longer a need for these things. There is no need for these things because we have the word written. So be very careful about that. I understand that people come out of all kinds of churches, charismatic churches and this and that, where people have claimed authority to speak for the Lord. Okay, the entire Seventh-day Adventist denomination which is not a Christian denomination as far as I'm concerned, but they claim that somebody spoke on behalf of the Lord. Anybody know her name? 
That's right, Ellen G. White, okay? So she had heavenly visions and her, it's kind of changed. If you go to their website nowadays, it's not quite the same as it used to be even three or four years ago. Used to be that right on the front page of the SDA website is, uh, we hold to the word of God as the inspired word, blah, blah, blah. And then of course, and we also hold to the writings of Ellen G. White. It was right there, it was as clear as crystal. It couldn't be any clearer. And all of a sudden over the past few years, they, they, they're hiding that because they know that it's wrong. But once you're into the church, then that stuff is introduced. So it's just one of those things that happens is that uh, the numbers are really starting to speak against my wife. We just had another male come in. So she's she's a lonely, lonely. Mom didn't show up today. She's in trouble. Yeah. Anyway, um, the uh, yeah, the uh, you got to be careful going to uh, certain websites and you think that this is a Christian website. And the next thing you know, you're being misled and you're being led down a primrose path. So just be careful about those things and understand that we have the Word of God. It is written. It is finished. And so this is where our power comes from. This is where our doctrine comes from. This is where our hope rests in the words here, which tell us of Jesus. We don't need anything else because we are told of Jesus in this Word of God. So if you have a blessed hope, it is because you have put your faith in the Word. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing by the word of God. That's correct. Okay, so there you go. I, I know that I say that a lot, but it's the most important thing that we have to remember is we do not need to get sidetracked by other issues or by other people that claim some type of authority which does not belong to the word of God. Okay, I, I'll just stop right there because I lots of stories. Anyway, 13.5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourself. Not realize that Christ Jesus is in you, unless, of course, you fail the test. Okay, this one is almost identical. It says, unless indeed you are disqualified. Okay, taking a test. I don't want to take any tests. All right, so uh, Paul now takes the time to turn around the Corinthians' accusations concerning his true apostleship, and they have, and then have them reflect on their own status. In both instances of the word yourselves. It is placed in the emphatic position. So we'll read it emphatically so you can get the uh, sense of what he says. Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you are disqualified? He's putting it in the emphatic position so that he wants them to understand this applies to you directly. Each one of you directly. This stems from their challenge of Christ speaking in Paul from verse 3. As Charles Ellicott restates this, you seek a test of my power, apply a test to yourselves. Try yourselves whether you are living and moving in that faith in Christ which you profess. That is the intent of Paul's words. It's a paraphrase, but that's what Ellicott is doing. He's telling you the intent of the words. Before we go on, it is 2020, isn't it? I just realized this, and I don't want to take a test, and it just dawned on me, I've got to take like 400 tests at the end of this year because my wastewater licenses are coming due again. It comes every two years and happens so quickly that, oh, you know, and if I don't keep them up, then I'll lose my license, and, you know, if something happens, I can't go back into the wastewater or the water business, so i got to take a, oh. You can study that while you're outside and eating inside. Yeah, that's true. That's right. Oh, I just I wish I didn't even say the word test because that's going to be on my mind now for the next six months. I've got to get that done. November time frame. I got to get uh, 20 hours of courses for the wastewater and 10 hours of courses for the water. So 30 hours of testing. Oh, oh, 
but I want to keep those up. You never know what's going to happen in life. You always, you know, what what is the old saying? Don't burn your bridges and cast your bread upon the waters. That's uh, burn your bridges isn't in the Bible, but uh, uh, Solomon says, cast your bread upon the waters. It's always be ready. Have a contingency in life because you don't know what is going to happen in life. And we don't know, you know, I mean, who knows? So keep up your wastewater license if you have one. A quick thing here with, uh, with Paul's telling them to look at themselves and check their own oil. Yes, check their own it, oil. It's like, you know, could you imagine saying this today? Oh, I know. Hello. <laughs> yeah, no. Yeah, no. People don't want to hear that today. Okay, so we'll go back and read the last sentence. I got diverted on tests. Try yourselves whether you are living and moving in that faith in Christ which you profess. Charles Ellicott's words. He is asking them, Paul, is asking them to look into their own consciences and determine what is going on there. However, Vincent's word study says that rather than examine yourselves, it should say try yourselves. He notes examination does not necessarily imply a practical test. It may be merely from curiosity. Trial, impl trial implies a definite intent to ascertain their spiritual condition. So I would agree with that. If you say examine yourselves, well, okay, I know what I'm now, and who cares? But when you try yourselves, you're not just examining, you're also going through a testing of what you are doing. Okay, so I would agree with Vincent's on there, obviously, because that's why I tossed it in there. But I really like Vincent's word studies analysis. There are times where I disagree with him, but normally he is very spot on because he does not really give commentaries. What he does is he gives, he takes a word from the New Testament and he goes through all the instances of it or he goes where it was first introduced and how it is used in relation to Jesus here and how it's used in relation to maybe this group over here. And he analyzes that and he will give you insights that I don't find anywhere else. He's really wonderful. Um, there are other commentaries that do kind of like that. But they're so wordy and so complicated. They're you know, the expositor's New Testament commentary and stuff like that. It's just they they become so wordy that they no longer say anything. And I don't know if it's they're just I don't know. But Vincent's is always very concise. He's very precise, and he's got good commentary. So if you can get Vincent's word studies, and you can get them right online. There's several sites that have them. Just go in there, and if you want to see uh, what is being said here, not from a commentary standpoint, but from an analytical standpoint of the words in the verse. But I will say this, Vincent's word studies, and this is something that you need to remember. Okay, I, I'm going to stop right in the middle of this verse because it's on my mind. It's an important thing to remember. Vincent's word studies will do this. Cambridge will do this. Uh, you'll it, Almost all of them will do it in one way or another. They will say, the best texts say... Okay, and they'll compare like the Byzantine and the Alexandrian. Okay, and they'll say, well, the best texts say. And therefore, what is that doing? The best text implies a subjective analysis. Okay, well, they will say it's the best text because it's the oldest. Okay, we found the Alexandrian text in Egypt and it predates the Byzantine text, which is used by, um, you know, uh, what's his name? Uh, Robert Stephanus in the uh, Geneva Bible which was based on, what was that guy that uh, translated the uh, received text? Um, Erasmus, okay? And so they used the Byzantine, and uh, there are real problems with the Byzantine text, uh, especially with the Book of Revelation. Uh, but when it, somebody says something like that, they are making a subjective analysis of a text. So when you read the words, the best text, don't be fooled by that. That is somebody's opinion, that's right, that because it's older, it's better. And that is not always the case, okay? Just because something is older is better 
doesn't work that way. Okay, it may be true that older is better. I would look at the Dead Sea Scrolls and say, wow, those things were found. They predate, uh, you know, the uh, uh, Masoretic text by 1,200 years or whatever, and therefore they're probably much more reliable. And then what you do is you take the Dead Sea Scrolls and you compare them with the Latin Vulgate. Why would you do that? Because the Latin Vulgate was translated out of the Hebrew about the same time. Okay. Make a comparison. Then you've got the Samaritan Pentateuch, this old translate. You've got all these things. You need to use these things. But when you read something that says the best texts, be careful. Because that is a subjective analysis saying that it's older, it's better, or it was found in, in uh, a Catholic monastery and they protected it and blah, blah, blah. Um, so be careful with that. All right. Uh, always check out everything. Okay, so I'm going to go back and read that again. Examination does not necessarily imply a practical test. It may merely be from curiosity. Trial implies a definite attempt to ascertain their spiritual condition. Paul's admonition for them to check whether they are in the faith, and that's his words, in the faith, is followed up by a second admonition, which is to test yourselves. The word is doki matsiti. And it has more force than the word for examine. It is a word which is used when proving metals through heat to determine their purity, which is what the Bible speaks of. You take silver and you refine it seven times and you get, you know, from the Old Testament symbolism. So when you take metals and you heat them, the bad stuff does what? Comes to the top. It's Yeah, that's, it's, that's right. Dross or slag or whatever. And they pull all of that stuff off and then they reheat it and they keep doing that until you've got the purest metal. And you get the, uh, this is just worth saying because some of you may not have heard the analogy. It's been in almost every sermon that was ever preached, but you may not have heard it anyway, is that the idea of purifying silver seven times is you're taking something yourself and you're going through a trial. Okay, we prayed for our, my friend Jill, who's in North Carolina, right? And she's been going through this constant trial of trying to find work. And what is happening? She's going through a real refining process, and she's being purified in that. And it's painful in the process. You're going through this heat, and you're going through this refining. But the more you get refined, what happens when you look at silver that's absolutely pure? You can see yourself. And when the Lord looks at you... Having been refined through his times of trial, he will see himself, not you. That's the point. I know that's a sermony type of thing, but it's true. And that's the point that's to be made, is that you have something that is so pure that now all you see is yourself looking in it. And the Lord is the one that's looking, therefore he sees himself in you. He's no longer seeing you. Now, obviously, when he looks at us, he's seeing Christ anyway. But uh, does anybody know how mirrors are made? What is used in mirrors, I should say? Silver. silver. That's right. All mirrors are backed with silver. If you have a mirror in your house, the backing is silver. Okay? And then if you want, just go to How It's Made. It's a wonderful five-minute video. I watch How It's Made videos. There are only a couple minutes. And if Hedico says dinner's going to be ready in five minutes and I'm done with my work, I'm sitting there with YouTube on, I'll watch one of these five-minute videos. And the one I'm making mirrors is wonderful. They take the glass and they put it out and then they put down a layer of silver and then they spray it with a layer of copper and then they do this and that. Making mirrors is marvelous how they do it. But that is the idea. When you look in a mirror, you see yourself. Unfortunately, in my case, it's not really that beautiful, but you, you, you see very clearly what is there. And that's the idea here that Paul is saying. This word, doki maziti, has more force than the word for examine. It is a word which is used when proving metals through heat to determine their purity. Once they have tried or examined themselves, 
they can now go a step further and prove what they have tested. Okay, think of yourself in these trials and the Lord is purifying me. Yes, Burke's got something. I'm just asking here, back when they were talking about the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11, he says to examine yourself before yes. you take it. So this examination there is different than this examination here? Well, I don't know. When you're examining yourself in the Lord's Supper, you don't want any hindrances to the Lord's Supper. And you also don't want to be... Uh, he says there that um, uh, this is why many of you have fallen asleep. They're taking the Lord's Supper in an inappropriate manner. I deserve this. I'm in the church. I deserve this. And none of us deserve it. So we're examining ourselves. We're finding out what we have done, which puts a wall between us and the Lord. And that's why we examine ourselves and we take and we say, Lord, I have not been right with you this week. And if anybody comes to the Lord's table and says, oh, I've been right with you this week, then they need to examine themselves further because that's all there is to it. I have not been right with you this week. I have not done what I should. I've done the things I shouldn't have done. I've been wrong. I've said bad things. I've thought bad things, a lot of bad things, etc. And that's what you're doing. You're examining yourself and you are saying, Lord, I need you to just accept me as I am. Infall I'm imperfect as I am and as infallible as you are. I want to meet with you here at the Lord's Supper because this is remembering the, the work of the Lord, as it says, until he comes. We remember his death until he comes. We're unworthy of that. And so that's why we're examining ourselves. We are not coming forward saying, I am worthy of it. And people get that wrong. I'm glad you brought that up because people misunderstand that. And some people won't come forward to take the Lord's Supper. Or, as I said, I, I think it was in a Bible study, it was sometime not too long ago, uh, that uh, one pastor was accusing his congregation. Some of you here aren't worthy of coming up here, and you need to not come up here today. And that's exactly the opposite of what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that you're unworthy of coming up here. Acknowledge that, reflect on it, and then come up, because none of you are worthy, okay? But you are to come. So let a man come and eat of the bread and drink of the cup. He doesn't say, so don't come. He says, do come. But after you have cleansed yourself before the Lord. And that goes back to the symbolism of John, where John is, where Jesus is in the Last Supper. Then he says, he who has had a bath only needs to wash his feet. Well, Peter says, oh, you know, you're not going to wash me, Lord. And if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. It doesn't mean that he's not saved. It means that he has already been cleansed. If you have come to Christ, you are cleansed. You are washed. You are clean. It is done. You are sanctified. It is done. But he's saying, he uses two different words there, nipto and luo. Nipto is the washing. Luo is the, the cleansing that comes afterward. And that goes back to the symbolism at the tabernacle. The tabernacle, the priests had to do what? Every time they went into the, they had to wash. That was what the bronze labor was for. They were already the priests. They were already ordained for the priesthood. They were consecrated. They were ordained. Everything was ready. And yet they had to wash every time they went in. That was a picture of our life in Christ. We're to wash before we come before the Lord. Not physically, not washing with our hands, but we're to wash. And so when Jesus did that, he was going back to the temple symbolism, and he says, you are all cleansed, except for not all of you. He's speaking about Judas, obviously. But you've been cleansed by me. I am the one that cleansed you. But you are going to continue to walk in this dirty world doing dirty things and thinking dirty things. And so you, Lua, you wash yourself in order to be right with Christ. And then that is what we do in the Lord's Supper. Not washing ourselves literally. He was making an objective lesson by doing that. Okay, so there you go. Um, 
you ask a question and I get off on all these tangents and now I don't remember where I am. It's your fault. I do. Anyway, um, here we go. So we've tried or examined themselves. Okay. In the theology of the Bible and supported by the words of Paul, faith is what saves. In order to know if one is in the faith, they have to try and prove their faith. Albert Barnes wisely notes that it is remarkable that while a child has no doubt that he loves a parent or a husband, a wife, or a friend, a friend, almost all Christians are in very great doubt about their attachment to the Redeemer and to the great principles of religion. Little child knows that he loves mom and dad, and yet we don't know our position before the Lord. And he says it's remarkable. He is, in fact, correct about that. Why should this be? It is because we fail our Lord. It is because we spend our time challenging the faith of others instead of tending to our own faith. And it is because we become unsure about the God that we cannot see. He's out there. We think we know he's there, but we have our doubts in our mind. They creep up. And Jesus, why are these doubts creeping up in your mind? He'd been with him all those years. He gets crucified, which he told him in advance he would be. And he said that I'd be raised again. Why are these doubts arising in your mind? But we have doubts. Okay. This is what the Corinthians had done. They had learned to trust the false apostles with their externals on prominent display, and they had stopped trusting in Christ in themselves, the hope of glory. Instead of this, Paul turns their possession of faith into a question. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? He is asking if they are sure they have trusted Christ and him alone for their salvation. It's what I was saying earlier. Paul doesn't question their salvation. He asks them to do it. Check it out. If they are trusting in their deeds for righteousness before God, then they will have failed the test. That is why the Hebrew Roots Movement is such poison. They are trusting in their deeds to be right before God. They are going back to the law of Moses and saying, I'm going to observe the Sabbath day. I'm not going to eat pork. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do that when Christ has already done all of that for us. He's done every bit of it, and he hung on the cross, and he says, it's almost done, no eating pork, and he died, right? He doesn't do that. He says, it is finished. It is completely done, and there is nothing left to be done. And these people keep reinserting this law, which Paul goes through it again and again and again and again. And he says, don't do this. And we get this simplest, and we've been getting it in Deuteronomy almost every single week, right from the book of Deuteronomy. We see it again and again. Moses, representing the law, will not do what? Save. Well, he won't save you, but I'm talking about him as an individual. He is not going to... See. He's not going into the promised land. He can only see it from afar. He is picturing our life in Christ. If you are in the law, you are not going into Christ. And if you give up the law and go by faith into the land of promise, we've been seeing it all the way since um, Numbers chapter 13, when the people rebelled against the Lord and they turned away and they were punished for all those years. It's all picturing Israel's rejection of faith in Christ instead trying to earn their favor, and then you come to that one little part in the wilderness wanderings where the people are getting bit by snakes, and Moses is told to make a bronze serpent and put it on a pole and lift it up, and it's a picture of the cross. Look at that, and you will be saved. And that's what every Jew that has been saved for the past 2,000 years has done. And any Jew that hasn't done that is not saved. Not saved. Okay, and that is where we are right now in the story. They're about to enter into the promise, and it will be by faith. Last week's sermon showed us this. The people on the other side of the Jordan, Moses gave them their inheritance. 
Moses. The people on the other side, the Lord gives them their inheritance. They both come from the Lord, but Moses is the one that gives it to them because the Lord gave them the authority. But it's not an inheritance in the promise. It's an inheritance outside of the promise. We keep seeing these things because we have to learn these lessons. And this is what Paul, exactly what Paul is speaking about right here. Okay. If they are trusting in their deeds, Seventh-day Adventists, they're trusting in their deeds. Sabbath day, you got to observe the Sabbath day, can't drink Pepsi, whatever their rules and regulations are, they are not going to be saved. Then they will have failed the test. Thus, Paul's final words, unless indeed you are disqualified. The King James Version says, except ye be reprobates. The translation is unfortunate. The word reprobate gives the Calvinistic concept of one who is a moral minuscule who is destined for hell. Yeah, this is not the intent of these words. Rather, the Weymouth translation gives a good sense of what Paul intends by saying, unless you are insincere. Other translations say something like, unless you fail the test. In that instance, the words fail the test mean to fail the test of sincere faith. Okay? In this verse, Paul is speaking less of works to prove one's salvation than that of true faith, which can endure times of testing, like our friend that I referenced at the beginning of the class. Jill, I'll bring her up a third time. She has kept her faith strong even in these times of testing. And every time I read one of her emails, I feel like crying because of the burden that she's had on her. And yet at the same time, when I'm done with the email, I'm like, woo! because she's so positive about the Lord's hand in her life. I, I, I just, if people could get that, if they could just say, I know this is, the Lord wants this for me. It really blows. I don't want it, but this is what he wants for me. Our walk with him would be a lot more sound, okay? We have to rely on the Lord, not on ourselves, trust in him, okay? It is unfortunate that so many Christians find it necessary to add the concept of being saved by grace through faith by claiming that deeds are necessary for saving faith. The only deeds that should be accomplished are those deeds which are of faith, and that is explicit in the book of Hebrews. James, it looks like he's talking about works justify you. He's not at all, because the works that he cites, Rahab the harlot, um, uh, Abraham sending his son up with him to Mount Moriah to uh, sacrifice him, etc. The very exact same examples that James gives are already given before the book of James in the Bible in the book of Hebrews. And it says, by faith, Abraham did this. By faith, Rahab the harlot did this. So it was an act of faith. It's not the act that saved them. It is the faith that did it, and their faith was worked out in action. Okay, but it is the faith which saves from the beginning to the end and all the way through. It is by grace through faith. Okay, to understand this, oh, here it is. Hebrews 11 gives a long list of such deeds by saying something like, by faith, this person did this or that. The things they did proved their faith through an internal process, not an external one. What is Hebrews 11 called? Everybody knows it's called the Hall of Fame of Faith. That's right, because it is these people that are exercising faith. Even if they did the words, I'll read that again. It is through an internal process, not an external process. Life application and we are done. To be saved, one must have faith in the gospel. Our righteousness is based on the works of Christ not on our own deeds. You will not find deeds anywhere in the salvation process. Zero. 
okay, after salvation, then your works can come in and you can get rewards and losses based on that. 1 Corinthians 3, 9 through 11, I think, and 1 Corinthians 5, right around verse 11 as well. That is, you will get rewards for what you do in this life. But once again, those deeds that you do have to be deeds of faith. If you just do something to get somebody out of your life, I'm going to do this and that way they'll leave me alone. That's not a deed of faith. That's a deed of convenience. Your deeds must be deeds of faith in Christ and for Christ, and he will reward you. Okay, that's where we stand with these type of things. It's a wonderful, wonderful book. We're almost done. I thought we'd be done today, but we're not. So we got a couple more verses. We'll be done in uh, uh, next week for sure, or maybe three sure. I might not be for sure, but anyway, we will get done. And then after that, we will be into the book of Galatians. Charlie, yes, sir. Why, why did Luther say that just shall live by faith? That because he was citing... He was citing uh, Habakkuk uh, 2.4, I believe it is, and then Paul cites it in the New Testament, the just shall live by faith. That is how we live. There's nothing we can do that will justify us apart from faith. Nothing. The only way we can be justified before God is by having faith in what God has done through Jesus Christ. There's nothing else we can do. We cannot add to that. After salvation, we can work out our faith in deeds of righteousness. We can obtain uh, what do you call it, rewards and losses, but we cannot add to our, our salvation. We are justified by faith, by grace, through faith, and that is it. And that's why Paul said that. And that's when he really had his epiphany is when he read the book of Romans. He struggled with this. He's on his knees walking upstairs in Rome and looking at every idol he's praying to it and doing all the stupid things that they do in Catholicism. And he got no closer to God than he was the day he was born. Until he realized in the book, you know what, somebody, apparently, I don't know if this story is true. We got less than one minute. Um, I don't know if this story is true, but he he was always going down confessing all night long. He just drove the people crazy because he's got this burden in his soul that he needs to be with God before he dies. And so every time he had a sinful thought, he'd run down and he'd confess it to the Monsignor or whatever they called him. And he'd run down. Ten minutes later, he's doing it. I just had a terrible thought. I need to confess it. And he went through this again and again. And finally, somebody said, here, why don't you try this? This book might help. And he handed him the Bible. It, was, it wasn't even used. It was just a, a secondary thing. And he went and read it. And he came to that verse. And he said, I've been doing it wrong all along. Christ already did it for me. Praise God for Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we certainly pray for the prayers that were mentioned at the beginning of this service. And I'd like to add in Mike. Uh, my friend, he's got some troubles right now in his life, some physical troubles and some other trials that he's going through. And so we'll add him in. And if there's anybody that didn't email me this week but is having their own troubles and trials, we'll add them in as well, um, Lord. But we certainly lift these people up in these situations. And uh, once again, if there's anything that was said that was not correct in this class today, I would pray that you would intervene in the minds of people and lead them to the correct analysis of that. But it would never be intentional. It would be by my incompetence and inability to process things properly. Uh, may that not be so, though. Whatever, Lord. We just leave it in your hands, and we know that you are capable of getting your word to your people in a way that they will understand if they seek you. And so, Lord, we just thank you for this time together today, and we just ask that you take everybody home safely, including our uh, brother Rick, who's going to be traveling in another day. And we pray that he has a really good summer up in the cooler weather while we're down here sweating. And we pray that we'll see him again real soon, unless you come first for us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Wow, that made my life way easier, Burke. Thank you. Way easier. <laughs> We've got to go to break.